What do pornography, Ginny Thomas, and Thomas Jefferson have in common? The answer may be, clue, may be a clue to what Democrats in the Biden administration could do about Clarence Thomas. First, the backstories, one from 1803, the other from 1968. There's always been an authoritarian streak in American politics, with studies showing about 20% of the population are authoritarian followers. It shouldn't be a surprise that authoritarians would rise to political power and could even take over an entire political party through the force of will and wealth. There's a, that, that's the story of authoritarian followers Clarence Thomas and his wife Ginny, who openly supported not just Trump's authoritarianism, but also his attempt to overthrow the government of the United States. Thomas was the lone vote on the Supreme Court in favor of Trump being able to conceal records from the January 6th committee. Congress, Thomas committed that flagrant violation of judicial ethics and unwillingness to recuse himself, even after his wife Ginny actively worked to overturn the election, even going so far as to reach out to legislators in Arizona and Wisconsin, the ones we know about, encouraging them to ignore their state's voters and award the Electoral College vote to Donald Trump. But Thomas's authoritarian streak isn't limited to sucking up to Donald Trump. For decades, he's been taking tens of millions of dollars worth of gifts from a Texas billionaire who's a major funder of Republican politicians, gave Ginny Thomas's group a half million dollars to start her own right-wing advocacy group, and has supported sleazy organizations trying to pack the federal judiciary. The last time an authoritarian toady on the Supreme Court was held to account was in 1803, and the analogies to today are startling. While John Adams, our nation's second president, wasn't wealthy himself, he was a big fan of the rich and powerful and the pomp and ceremony associated with money and power. When his carriage drove through towns between his home in Massachusetts and the seats of government in New York and Washington, D.C., he ordered each town's militia into the streets to celebrate his passage. He reveled in the attention and support of his wealthy Federalist patrons. Most significantly, though, Adams pushed through Congress the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798, a set of laws that made it a crime to criticize the president. They were so, they so upset Vice President Thomas Jefferson that he left Washington, D.C. the day they were signed and never again spoke with John Adams in person. They later reconciled, but by mail. Within a few months of passing the laws, Adams had shut down over 20 Democratic-Republican, now the Democratic Party, newspapers and imprisoned most of their publishers and editors, including Ben Franklin's grandson, Benjamin Franklin Bach. One of Adams's closest allies on the Supreme Court was Samuel Chase, another big fan of throwing newspaper editors in jail and punishing people who had the temerity to criticize the president. But back then, Supreme Court justices were also judges on circuit courts. The offenses for which Chase was impeached were as a trial judge, not for his behavior on the Supreme Court. He presided over multiple prosecutions of Democratic-Republicans, most famously John Fries and Thomas Cooper, and campaigned hard for Adams in the election of 1800, where Adams lost the presidency to Thomas Jefferson, as Dan Sisson and I detail in Dan's book, The American Revolution of 1800, How Jefferson Rescued Democracy from Tyranny and Faction. As Chase's behavior became more and more authoritarian, Jefferson suggested somewhat obliquely that he should be impeached. Maryland's Joseph Nicholson, the House member who presided over the impeachment trial of Judge John Pickering and later at Jefferson's urging Supreme Court Associate Justice Samuel Chase, was the recipient of Jefferson's note, which read, quote, Ought this seditious and official attack on the principles of our Constitution and on the proceedings of the state go unpunished? 
and to whom so pointedly as yourself will the public look for the necessary measures? I ask these questions for your consideration. For myself, it is better that I should not interfere. End quote. Justice Chase was a preening authoritarian, much like Clarence Thomas, and not well-liked, even by Martin Luther, the defense lawyer he hired for his impeachment trial in the Senate. A few years after the trial, Chase was the judge in a case involving Martin, when Chase chastised him for, uh, whom Chase chastised for showing up in court intoxicated. I am surprised that you can so prostitute your talents, Chase told Martin, wagging his finger. Martin, who had won Chase's acquittal before the Senate years earlier, replied to Chase and the jury, Sir, I never prostituted my talents except when I defended you and Colonel Burr, a couple of the greatest rascals in the world. End quote. The history of impeachments for the Supreme Court ends there. Chase, like Donald Trump, was impeached by the House, 73 to 23. But at his trial, Nicholson failed to reach the necessary thir- two-thirds vote in the Senate. That precedent and the lack of other impeachments of Supreme Court justices in the intervening years, because they've generally not been as corrupt or political as Chase or Thomas, largely rules out a successful impeachment today. But there is another option. Fifty-four years ago, Republicans went nuts over an ethics scandal involving a Democratic-appointed member of the court, and their effort produced so much pressure that he resigned. To understand the possibilities, it's essential to know the precedent that explains how Republicans succeeded in replacing a justice they claimed was corrupt with Harry Blackman back in 1968-69. Supreme Court Justice Abe Fortas didn't resign until President Richard Nixon's campaign manager and Attorney General John Mitchell threatened to bring felony corruption charges against Fortas's wife. But I get ahead of myself. It's a truly amazing story that most people alive today know nothing about. It started with dirty movies being shown in the U.S. Capitol. I remember the Fortis Film Festival because when it started in the summer of 68, I was a teenage boy and curious about the movies that Senator Strom Thurmond was showing to his male peers in that meeting room in the Capitol. Most people in America were probably also curious. The Supreme Court had recently legalized pornography, but watching it back then meant sitting in a sleazy theater in a sleazy part of town with a bunch of sleazy characters. But the infamous segregationist Senator Thurmond was on a roll in 1968, playing dirty movies back-to-back for any senator or aide who wanted to show up. Time magazine did a feature on it, noting, quote, Day after day last week, Thurmond buttonholed his colleagues to watch the films in darkened Senate offices. One aide of Richard Nixon called it the Fordist Film Festival. The senators were not titillated but shocked, and they left the showings in a grim mood. The screenings apparently swayed some votes away from Fortis. Senators know that middle-class opposition to pornography is rising, and the subject, like the Supreme Court itself, has become a symbol of what's wrong in the U.S., end quote. The newspapers loved it, as similar film festivals popped up on campuses across the country. Yale, for example, got into the act, holding their own Fortis Film Festival, featuring the same movies Thurmond had shown it to the Senate. As the New York Times noted at the time, quote, The main feature of the night was Flaming Creatures seen months earlier by members of the Senate Judiciary Committee during their debate on Justice Fortas's nomination as Chief Justice. In the audience was John T. Rich, editor of the Yale Law Journal. I figured if Senator Strom Thurmond could see this movie, so could I, he said. End quote. So what provoked the Fortas Film Festivals? It was purely a burning desire by conservatives to shift the Supreme Court to the right, amplified by Richard Nixon's vigorous campaign that year to become president in the November election. It started in the last year of LBJ's presidency. 
In June of 1968, Supreme Court Justice Earl Warren, a liberal who'd been appointed by Dwight Eisenhower, decided to resign from the court so that President Lyndon Johnson would have a full six months to replace him with another liberal. LBJ proposed elevating the only Jewish member of the U.S. Supreme Court to become the new Chief Justice and Homer, and Homer Thornberry to fill Warren's empty seat. But racist and anti-Semitic conservatives like Thurman and presidential candidate Richard Nixon saw the upcoming hearings as a grand opportunity. They postponed Thornberry's nomination, front-loading the hearings about putting Fortas in charge of the court, and then ran an inquisition into Fortas over a $15,000 speaking fee he'd taken to address a college group. Clarence Thomas, by the way, has also taken $15,000 in speaking fees, for the record. With that scandalous payment and his vote to the, on the court to legalize pornography as the excuses, Republicans and racist Southern conservative Democrats like Thurman arrayed a Senate filibuster to block the liberal and Jewish Fortas's elevation to chief justice. It dragged out for months. On October 2nd, 1968, it became obvious the filibuster couldn't be broken, and Fortas withdrew his name from consideration for chief justice, although he planned to remain on the court as an associate justice like his peers. But by then, it was too late for LBJ to elevate another liberal to chief justice Warren to chief justice. Warren stayed on the court for another half year to provide continuity, and also too late for LBJ's nominee, Thornberry, to even be considered to replace Warren's empty seat before the presidential election four weeks later. But that was just the beginning. Once Nixon came into office on January 20th, 1969, he put ending the court's liberal bent at the top of his agenda. That meant not only replacing Warren, who stayed on until June of 1969, but to tip the court conservative, getting rid of its most liberal member, Abe Fortas. Attorney General John Mitchell ordered the Justice Department to begin an investigation into Fortas's wife, Carolyn Agger, who was a lawyer with the D.C. firm that had previously employed Fortas. Right-wing media had claimed, without evidence, that documents that might be found in her safe in her office might prove she was involved in a tax evasion scheme. There was never any evidence whatsoever, either of Fortas or his wife, being corrupt. It was and is not illegal to take a speaking fee. Members of the court do so routinely today, and there was nothing incriminating in her safe. But Richard Nixon, John Mitchell, and Abe Fortas knew the old legal saw, a grand jury can indict a ham sandwich. Mitchell had also dredged up another payment that Fortas had earned, this one $20,000 a year, for serving on the board of a charitable foundation, which is not uncommon for high-end D.C. lawyers then or now. This was also totally legal, and nothing compared to the hundreds of thousands of dollars Jenny Thomas has taken from right-wing groups and Harlan Crow since her husband was put on the court. But Fortas gave back the money anyway. Not only did that not help, his returning the money was, Nixon charged, proof that it was corrupt in the first place. Mitchell then announced he was going to have a Justice Department lawyer named William Rehnquist convene a grand jury to look into the crimes that right-wingers were claiming Fortas and his wife had committed. As Nixon's White House counsel John Dean, who was there and knew the players, wrote in his book on the era, quote, Did the Justice Department have the goods on Fortas? Not even close. Mitchell's talk was pure bluff. Lyndon Johnson's Justice Department had investigated this question back when Fortas was nominated for Chief Justice in 1968 and found nothing improper. Reopening of the matter by Richard Nixon's Justice Department was purely a means to torture Fortas, end quote. But faced with the possibility of his wife being dragged through the mud and both of them spending years and a fortune defending themselves, Fortas threw in the towel. 
He resigned from the Supreme Court five months into Nixon's presidency on May 14, 1969. With their mission accomplished, Mitchell immediately dropped the threat of a grand jury. As John Dean noted, quote, The Fortis resignation meant that Richard Nixon now had two seats to fill on the court, Earl Warren's center seat and the seat of Associate Justice Abe Fortas, who was leaving the court at 59 years of age. It also meant that two of the court's most liberal justices were gone. Nixon's aggressive posture toward the court was paying off in a big way, with the help of John Mitchell and his hard-nosed team at the Justice Department, Rehnquist among them. Thus, Nixon was ultimately able to replace three liberal justices on the court over his following two years, turning it from liberal to conservative, where it remains to this day for the first time since 1937. They were Harry A. Blackman, 1970, Louis F. Powell, 1971, and William Rehnquist, 1971. Which brings us to today. Aside from Clarence Thomas's corrupt relationship with Crow, his wife has also benefited from a half million dollars from Crow for her political activities, as well as actively participating in a seditious conspiracy to overthrow the government of the United States. Instead of trying to impeach Thomas, an almost impossible lift, the Biden administration and Democrats in the Senate would be better served investigating Ginny's corruption and attempted sedition. If they're lucky, or strategic, they may be able to get an Abe Fortas outcome.